In today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I go over your 14-6 and six Philadelphia 76ers, including the recent wins over the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Los Angeles Lakers, where Joel Embiid looks like an MVP. As always, head on over to theathletic.com slash SixersBeat if you're not already an Athletic subscriber, where you can get 50% off of a yearly subscription. And also, if you can, leave us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, especially on Apple Podcasts, if you could do that. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bonner, joined once again by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. You're 14 and 6 Philadelphia 76ers. They are what now two games up on the entire Eastern Conference alone at the top after wins over really the opposite ends of the spectrum in the Los Angeles Lakers and the Minnesota Timberwolves. How you doing, Rich? I'm okay, man. Have you been noticing that the Sixers, after the Lakers win, have been getting some national, like, this is a finals preview buzz, which... They have. Look. Which is funny, because us, the two local guys, are still like, well, pump the brakes, and the national people are running with it, but that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, they're one one and a half games up on the Brooklyn Nets. That is their uh, their closest team. They've just uh, they played a lot more games than yeah, or not a lot more than than some teams are catching up. But well, they're, they're they're tied in the loss column with the second place team, right? No, they're they're one game up on them. Okay, but but yeah, with the national buzz, it is funny that they do beat the Lakers and they they played well in that game, except for the final couple minutes, which we'll get to. But I'm not quite feeling it just yet. The, the finals buzz. It feels like a team that is still a few pieces away and also trying to figure out what they are going to be down so they, the line. They came off of a great win against the Lakers and a dominant performance from Joel Embiid, which drew Shaq comparisons, which are destroying my Twitter experience. And you're going to come on here and be a curmudgeon. No, I mean, like, I, I just think it's... It's probably a little too soon, but the, the start to the season has been awesome. And, you know, th- them beating the Timberwolves should not be any great prize. But yeah. considering how this team has let down against bad opponents sure. in, in past years, for them to not only win, but to make it, okay, like in the third quarter, let's put this thing out of reach early fourth. Let's not put Joe back in the game. That was good. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, and so much of, you know, it, it like so much of the way we discuss the team is centered around are they one of the three to five best teams in the league that can realistically win the trophy? And I think that paints a picture of negativity that maybe is more than we actually feel. Like this is a good team with one of the best players in the world that's constructed well around him and has a pretty good base of talent around him. There's a lot to be happy about, including your MVP caliber Big man who, I mean, look, that is no small development. Like we might not believe that they have the supporting pieces to win the Larry O'Brien trophy right now, but that development that he has taken was the absolute biggest step they needed to get on the path to winning that thing. So maybe we're still skeptical of whether or not they can do it this year. But the fact that he has made that jump is the biggest thing you can take away from this early going. But you just add in, it's just, it's such a weird year. It's like, 
that Lakers game truly might be their one measuring stick game that we have. And we're 20 freaking games into the season. Like you should have more quality teams that you have played. And they would have, if it wasn't for COVID and the Miami heat and the Jason Tatum and the Boston Celtics and all of those um, mitigating factors, it just leaves us as analysts in a spot where we have way less information than I would have ever expected 20 games in. That being said, they have now won seven of their last nine games. Joel Embiid is looking better than he ever has. And like the MVP talk is not premature at this point. Like you're, you're not quite a third of the way into the season, but more than a, a quarter. Like you're a significant chunk. You know, Brett used to always break them up into thirds. You've got like maybe four more games and you've got a legitimate third of the season gone. And Joel Embiid is putting up Shaq-like numbers, like legitimate, truthfully Shaq-like numbers. Do you remember a couple of years ago? I think it was 2016, coming into the 2016-17 season, before Embiid had ever played a game. And Brett said two things that just blew me. Well, I had three takeaways from that. First of all, Brett started talking about politics and Trump, and Mike Preston, the PR manager at the time, looked like he was about to have a heart attack uh, because that is not what he wanted to come away from that um, <laughs> that that luncheon that we had. Uh, in the, we had some political discussions off the uh... – off the record. Yeah, and say, Preston was, was very nervous. Um, the other one was he was like, Joel Embiid is my, he, he's my focal point offensively. And I think at that time we were like, hey, he shows some real potential at Kansas. Uh, but that was a, a project. Like, he probably shouldn't be a focal point right away. Well, it turns out Brett was right about that. The other comment he made, he called him Shaq with soccer feet. And I will never forget that as a description for Embiid. And right now you are watching Shaq with soccer feet. Um, not as physically dominant. Like he's not trucking people in the post like Shaq would, but it's pretty gosh darn close. And that is like watching this all come together is great. It is great. You really do feel his size on a, on a night-to-night basis. Like the, the Timberwolves, they did not have Carl Towns. They did not have their backup center either, I don't think, although I didn't do the research to know who that is. I'm not sure that would have made a difference either. But they were put in a situation where Ed Davis and Jared Vanderbilt were the yeah. two guys having to guard him. And, you know, I think it was uh, I think it was Rob Perez on Twitter. He, he made the point. He's like, think about all of these guys in the NBA. Like, you're if you make the NBA, you're probably Mr. Basketball from your state. You were a division one player. You were just jumping over people for your whole career. And then you get to the NBA and you play against Joel Embiid. And it feels like a bug against the windshield where, (laughs) I mean, he shot terrible in the first half last night. I mean, it was four of 12 from the field, which for him is terrible just because every shot is fairly easy. He's getting great looks and he just didn't have the touch, but he got to the line 12 times and he said it after the game. That's how you stay efficient, and I mean it's it's amazing. What was the uh, what was the stat you had on Twitter that oh, uh, that's ruining this. your mentions? Uh, at least people can't yell at me through podcasts like they did through through Twitter. Uh, so he's currently averaging twenty eight point three points per game on a sixty six point nine percent true shooting. Shaq had five seasons where he averaged at least twenty eight points per game, and his true shooting percentage—I forget exactly what they were—but they're were all between fifty seven and sixty percent. So you're talking about Embiid with like legitimate six to 10 percent better true shooting on a on a, a similar usage rate than what prime Shaq had and a, a lot of people like 
went off on that and oh he, here's Shaq's accomplishments. No shit. I'm just pointing out how efficient Joel has been so far this season while comparing him to maybe the only one that even plays a remotely similar style to him. And then people are like, oh, well, he shoots a three and Shaq. Yeah, there's no direct comparison. I'm sorry. The games of all. Uh, my favorite response to that, by the way, was people being like, oh, well, but that's only because Joel makes his free throws. And it's like, well, yeah, OK, that's... that's sort of the point. Like, that's a, a key part of efficiency, especially for people who get there that often. Um, but my only real point there is that big men, especially like seven foot two post up. Primary post up options do not have this kind of efficiency. And it was pointed out to me by Mike Lynch, uh, who works for um, what do they call himself? Stat says now used to be basketball reference, sports reference. Uh, the only 25 plus point per game score with a 65% true shooting percentage in NBA history besides Joel Embiid so far this year, Steph Curry. Uh, so pretty rarefied air, whether you can even take away that post up center qualification. It's pretty rare what he is doing now. Look, this is sort of where like you and I tend to be like a flat line. Uh, if we were, um, you know, a heart rate monitor, we'd, we'd be dead. Like we don't go up and down as quickly as fans. It, would, it makes sense. It's sort of our job, both as analysts and as reporters. Is he going to continue making like 60 whatever percent from the mid-range? No. No. Is he going to end up making probably 40% from three? Probably not. I think he, he might be improved as a three-point shooter, but he could drop a couple percentage points here. Uh, so will he maintain this level of efficiency? Probably not. Like there's still, you know, we've still got 52 games to go and this is pretty crazy, the shooting numbers. I think a lot of the post-up stuff can carry over. Some of the shooting numbers are like Dirk-like uh, and he's as good as he is. I'm not sure he's Dirk. But I think uh, I think he's going to end up with a huge scoring average that's really really special levels of efficiency, and this could be a, a I mean this could be an MVP caliber season for sure, for sure. But he's in such rarefied air. He could drop that, five. That he could, he could drop still a lot yeah. and still have a really super high level of efficiency, which is awesome. I think uh, it is crazy when you bring up those numbers, though, compared to Shaq, because I I always thought Shaq was maybe a little more efficient than that. And by the way, Shaq, he basically, he played when I was a kid for the most part. Well, and he was one of the most dominant players I've ever seen. And he always led the league in like field goal percentage. And when you would see him dunking on dudes for 60% of the game, like our understanding of what efficient basketball hadn't yet completely caught up to the value of, Hey, that shot, you know, 24 feet out is actually worth more points and making your free throws helps. Um, So it's easy. Look, he was insanely efficient for what he was. Yeah, it's just well, Embiid having a little more diverse of a game helps him in that regard. As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using the BetMGM lines to make all our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TABasketball, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code TABasketball. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game. Claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 21 plus to wager. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Nevada, New York, and Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana... 
Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada, 1-800-327-5050 Massachusetts, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. In partnership with Kansas, Crossing Casino and Hotel. In Ontario, if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone else close to you, please contact Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600 to speak to an advisor free of charge. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, and Utah and other states where prohibited. Promotional offers not available in Nevada and New York. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TA Basketball and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager. Well, the bar has been raised for what an efficient player is too yeah. with what the Hardens and the Currys and the Durants and all of these guys on the perimeter are doing, which in Shaq's era was... Iverson taking mid-range jumpers, Kobe taking mid-range jumpers, you know, it's that type of thing, McGrady. Um, so the, the the bar has been raised. The point is that Embiid is clearing that bar right now right. fairly easily, which is ridiculous. There, uh, I mean, the things that you just brought up are why post-up centers are so out of the league. And Embiid is not only the one exception, he is beating the little men in a little man's game. It's It's really impressive. It's really impressive. He's probably going to have like a rough first half the next time they play on TNT, and Shaq's going to be like, "Well, he doesn't want it enough. You don't want it. Get in the post, uh, you know, one of those things." <laughs> but uh, he's been unbelievable. I mean, MVP of the league so far to me. I, like, I know Jokic's numbers are unbelievable. His efficiency is crazy too. I know LeBron is leading. A great team. Like, if you're voting today and Embiid's not the MVP, I, sometimes I get mad at Sixers fans when they don't take stock of the rest of the league when it comes to voting and hey it's like these other guys are putting up these massive numbers too you know like the national media they're not biased against the Sixers they're just voting for the other people if if we were were done today Joe is the MVP it's not really that close in my opinion and uh, the good news for him too is it's often like a narrative based award like who tells the best story he's telling a pretty good story with uh you know, never being up at this level, struggling a little last year, at least for him, and then the team really struggling. So it's uh, it's been awesome. I'm uh, really the only concern with him is uh, is the back okay, and uh, on, on a night to night basis. But everything else, he's he's got to figure it out right now. Yeah, I mean, some of your other, I mean, t- to me, it, it it's and it seems premature to be talking about this, but um, LeBron's the only other real major contender, and I think, I mean, it's LeBron James. You can make a case for him pretty much any other time. Jokic and Doncic are putting up MVP caliber numbers. Doncic, get out of here. Uh, you're 8 and 11 you, right now. Your team and, sucks. Like, it's, it's, is that his fault? Probably not, but that is part of the award for sure. Wait, um, hey, I said this about Joe last year when he didn't make an all-NBA team. I was like, well, the team is disappointing, and yeah. that's, that's probably, well, guess what? Now you get the opposite bump. Yeah, for sure. For sure. He is, he is, he is right there. And I mean, when you start looking at some of the ad- advanced metrics with Embiid, and this, you can go back and look at some of these. Like he's putting up 0.301 win shares for 48 minutes. That's absurd. That is yeah. absurd. His his advanced whenever metrics, whenever you get into the twos on basketball yeah. reference on that, that's like wow, he's playing really he's, well. He's in the threes. That that's is that's a guy. That when, is, when you when you hit the threes, it's LeBron. It's like Steph MVP seasons. It's Harden. And when you say LeBron, like LeBron's done that twice. Yeah. Like, that's no, not that's even a like, typical LeBron year. That's the best. No, those the are the ones that stand out yes. in LeBron's storied career. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's hard to do. And he's not going to keep it up, but that's okay. No, no, he's not. That's okay, because he's so far into the absurd 
category that he, there's some regression built in and, and he'll be okay. Um, like you mentioned, though, going back to the game against the Wolves, uh, Nas Reed, um, their, their backup center, who's Nas Reed, undersized, but he's he's built. Um, he could have helped. He would have had no chance against him no, either. But <laughs> the 215-pound Jared Vanderbilt certainly didn't have a chance. No. So, uh, yeah, that was a, a, a matchup. And like you mentioned at the beginning, first first half, really, he was getting his shots. He was just missing Smart shots. Going in. He makes. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, he, he was getting the free throw line. Uh, I mean, he came right out and he was like, this is how you maintain a, uh, consistency, which is part of the reason why I'm so impressed with Tobias Harris, because he's very much not getting the free throw line and he's still being <laughs> been consistent. Uh, on a related note, that's why I'm a little more worried about Tobias Harris's regression coming up here, because he doesn't do things like get to the free throw line or really set up his teammates. But I mean, shit, he's gone 20 games and he's making every shot. So I can't like can't worry too much, I guess. But yeah, I'm getting the line 12 times or whatever in the first half. It's just it's incredible. It's incredible to, to thoughts. combine that physical dominance with that intellect on drawing the fouls. It's it's really tough to guard. Yeah. Two two thoughts on that, um, on his performance against the Wolves specifically. To start the third quarter, it wasn't five possessions in a row, but it was pretty close to it. Five possessions in a row, five post-touches, which again, is it a post-touch post, if he catches yeah. it 15 feet from the hoop and then faces up? I don't know. But with his back turned to the basket when he catches it. And he scored 10 points. And two, of the, or, uh, two points off a, off a foul on a drive. Three just hitting a jumper in a guy's face. And that is part of the intellect we're talking about. Because he mentioned this last night after the game. If you reach your hand in, he will draw the foul on you one way or another. But guys, like you could see Ed Davis with three fouls in that third quarter. You know, he he wants to reach for the ball. But as soon as Joe goes goes up for the shot, his arms are at his waist at the end of it. That is... You know, obviously, like Joe's mid-range shooting is an aberration. It's it's a little bit further than it's going to be. Like, there's going to be some regression, but it's an easy shot once he gets it going. Like, sure. he knows a lot of these guys aren't even going to try to block it because they are so deathly afraid of the foul. And he also talked about how you know he can use his leverage and back a person down whose hands are at his uh, um at, at his waist, but. You know, for him, that's a great shot right now where he could just pop from about 12 feet and knock it in. He's been, uh, he's he's got it all working. The the other thing I was thinking too, just in general with the 10 points in a row on the post-ups, he's had like seven or eight stretches of that. That is not common. So uh, for a player to get the ball five times in a row and score 10 points like that is not common he did that in the Washington game to get them back the the opening game he did that in that crazy heat game that might have been more than 10 points on on five possessions in the third quarter where he was just dominant he puts together these stretches that are like it's so crazy for a big guy to be doing that I associate that with Curry making a bunch of threes right but no it's him just casually pulling his way to the basket popping jumpers in guys faces it is I, I mean, I, I don't know how many ways we can put it. What he is doing is so rare right now. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, Doc sort of even spoke about it before the game. He's like, look, we were on a play. It works. We're going right back to it. And he's like, I don't care if the opposing coach knows that. Like, that's just the way I've always been. And right now, when you've got a guy like Embiid, where when he's in a zone like that, there's no good option. Like, you can send the double team, but he's been making the right reads out of that, especially when he's facing up. Uh, you can you can try to cover him one on one, but like 
LOL Jared Vanderbilt. Like, I don't know what you do right now, especially when he's making that 17 foot over what he is. I think teams are getting more afraid of doubling him too. Like, I think the early season tape got out on him. And to be clear, that's going to be their best option moving forward because if he's scoring on Marcus all now, that's that's the final boss. That's like that's the last person. I don't think anybody can handle him one on one. So if, so if he can handle Gasol one on one, everybody is going to have to double him in one way or another. But you can tell the teams that there's there's pain involved yeah. with them doing it. Because you really saw that with the Pistons game when they tried that first game to cover him one on one. It was like, what are you doing? You have no chance. But they took away the three point line in that they game, did? which which gave them a little bit of a chance. First half, it was right there. Yep. In a. Uh, in a weird game, but you could see like, I think the tape is out on him that it's like, man, we really have to time our double team right. Because if, if we do not come correct and have the right pre-rotations, like he's going to create a wide open three for a good shooter. And that's not good. Yeah. All right. Where do we want to go from there? I thought the other main takeaway other than, um, uh, I guess two main takeaways, uh, first Matisse Thibel specifically, but also just that bench unit with Tobias, really pushing the lead in the what was it, beginning of fourth quarter, I think, when there's still a chance that Joe could come back to the game uh, and extend his minutes. So they had a real nice run there to close it out. I guess we can go to Thibel, and then we can go to Harris's fit with that bench mob. You know, it is, I, I forget exactly how many steals he ended up with Thibel in that game, two or three. Uh, I think five, three steals and two blocks, something like that. Yes. Yeah, He had his hands on everything. It was really impressive to see some of those rear contest shots that we spent all of the beginning of last season talking about came real into play last night. And he was just a pesk. And he is such a, to me, he's, he's maybe the most frustrating person on the team because when he shows what he can do like that, it's just like, holy shit, this can change a team's defense. Not only that, but it can like actually like get teams out in transition too. And it's so fun to watch and it adds such a dynamic to their defense. Um, and then he has games where it's just like, what are you doing offensively? Like if they can just yeah. get him to a baseline level of competency, I, I, I'd love to be able to pencil him in to a rotation. Uh, and last night I think really showed why there's so much intrigue around him. So, so the he's way had a I couple would, good games in a row too. It wasn't just last night. Well, the way I would put it is that he has a lot of games where defensively I'm like, wow, you, you're, you're locked in. You're really making the plays that you just mentioned. The, crazy point of attack plays and getting your hands on balls. But when you run down to the other end of the court, I'm thinking, what are you doing offensively? <laughs> yeah. And he is, man, he is really pushing the envelope of a defense first player <laughs> at this point. His offensive numbers suck. Oh, it wasn't even good last night. It's not even like he's making shots right now. Yeah. Dude, what what is he? He's averaging like four points a game on like 43% true shooting or something like that. It oh, is okay. Uh, 2.8 points per game on oh, it's even uh, down. Uh, 41.3% true shooting. Yeah. Yep. Oh man. That's not good. That oh. is on, un- that's, that's borderline unplayable, but for some reason the Sixers have this weird, I mean, I mean that like offensively that definitely is unplayable. Yeah. He might end up with a higher steal percentage and block percentage than assist percentage, which is just, I've never seen. He might even, uh, he's getting close. He's a 4.3% steal rate, 4.3% block and a 10% usage. It's like unfathomable. I've never seen a wing like him. So, yeah, I mean, like that's 
really bad, but for some reason in this weird Sixer season, he he has his role on defense. And, you know, there are games, I, I would say, really the last three, I think he's had a good week defensively. Yep. On uh, on Monday, he frustrates Blake in what was an otherwise crappy game for the Sixers. That was probably the high point, <laughs> getting Blake to two-hand shove him because he was denying him so well. And then on, on Wednesday, he played against LeBron. He got a lot of love after the game. I wasn't like, you know, it, he didn't frustrate LeBron. He, right. he did an admirable job, I guess, you know. He definitely, uh, I remember him bad foul jumping into him for three. He actually, he did a better job, I think, on LeBron last year. He Snuck behind him three times for steals in that uh, in that crazy January win they had. But then, I mean, against Ricky Rubio and D'Angelo Russell, he was a monster. And Ricky Rubio is not playing that well this year, defensively. That's speak or offensively. Speaking of another bad offensive player, um, but Matisse made his life absolute hell. And I totally agree with you that you know, regardless of my reservations of his offense. When Matisse has it going on defense and he's creating all of this havoc, it is just fun to watch. <laughs> like, I, I enjoy it. And it's certainly, there's a quality that I've always associated with him that it, it's an intangible that when he gets a couple steals and he gets a jump ball because on a rear view contest, he swallows a guy's shot, which is yeah, really, yeah. which is really rare. Like, that doesn't happen. No, no. I remember um, the first time, first his first game, his rookie year, he tried that on Kemba Walker. And Kemba Walker's like, dude, I've got way too much stuff in my bag of tricks for this. What are you doing? And then, like, by the second quarter, he had, like, adjusted and, and gotten that rearview contest. And you're right, a jump ball on a guy shooting a jump shot when he thinks he matter. has a wide-open shot, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. By the same time, I mean, it's, it's a high-risk style because there are still times when he'll foul a guy right. on three-point attempts, which... Kemba Walker will still figure that out. Yeah. And the guys really, I mean, it's most guards in the league will have the, the three point shot. I think Marcus smart got him on it once. Although to be fair, Marcus smart, when he does it, it's, it doesn't look good. Like he's physically jumping back into you. And I wonder if the refs like that, that's a fairly high level of BS, but most guards have the play where, they will dribble literally right off the screen. They will not get an inch of separation off the guy's back. And Matisse will run into the guy because he thinks he's contesting a normal basketball play. And he's not. Um, but when he's got it going, it's it's awesome. I You know, despite the, the offensive struggles, and you wrote about this this week a little bit, but and it's it's been a lot of the chatter on, on Twitter. Playing him, Simmons, and Howard together, yeah. In the long run, that's whatever the the level of shooting that you need to survive. I think that's probably below it. Um, probably, yeah. I think that's a fair fair statement. Uh, and look, I don't think I don't think that trio played last night in large part because I mean Embiid played and you didn't need that many minutes from Dwight. He wasn't starting like he previously was, and and it was a blowout in the second half. So Simmons wasn't playing all that much either. Uh, but it does concern me how frequently they've gone to that. And look, I expect that group to defend better than they have. But, I mean, you need something. Like, I mean, Matisse right now, almost two-thirds of his shots are on threes, and he's shooting like 22% from three. Like, that's just not really... It, it, it's such a tough player to figure out what to do with. 
Just and then, then you have Ben, who's the tough but superstar. You don't really want to play him next to Joel because spacing's so important. I don't know what the answer truly is. The, the best answer was the lineup they had last season, where they had Ben, but they had Horford, too. Yeah. That's the lineup. That is where you want to play Matisse. That, uh, I, uh, that Horford isn't on the team, Rich. I know, I know. But you know what? That's okay. Which, by it's... the way, good move. You had to get rid of him. I don't, don't misinterpret. Like, don't, <laughs> don't aggregate me and... You know, don't windy me here. Uh, the trade had to be made, but um, they. I, I go back, going back to our point last podcast and our point before the season, a a stretch five would really help this team. Yeah. So, I I don't know what exactly to do with Matisse except just keep playing him and hope maybe some of these threes go in at some point. I mean, he's a better shooter than a twenty two percent. Yep. Three point shooter. I just it, it's the opposite effect of Joel though. It's okay, Joel is going to regress, but he's been so good that he can afford to regress and still be at a very acceptable level. Matisse is going to regress back to the mean in another way, but he's so bad right now that I wonder just what is the end product? Is that something we are all that comfortable with moving forward? And I'm not sure about that, but I I guess the best way to just watch Matisse is just, just enjoy the the games where he's got it going on defense. And and he's had a few of those over the past few games, for sure. Yeah, it's just, and look, three-point shooters are streaky. You're never going to have a guy who shoots 36% every week. It's just, that's not how shooting works. Matisse seems extra streaky, though. Like, if you remember last year, beginning of the year, he couldn't make a shot. Middle of the year, he made every shot. Like, he legitimately went, like, 15 games where he was shooting over 50% from three. His and December then that year, he couldn't make awesome. a shot again. Yeah. So it, it's just when he's in these funks where he can't, buy a perimeter shot it's real tough to consistently play him and i want to consistently play him because of his development and also because of his defense um and look i the six are doing a real nice job of getting out in transition this year i thought you know i think and when you start looking at the math i think a drop coverage especially a deep drop like the sixers played last year there's reasoning behind it one of the things i always thought it hurt big time was their ability to force turnovers and get out in transition um and they're doing real good at that dish. They're not, and we mentioned this before, they're not a super aggressive pick and roll team, but they're a little more aggressive and that's led to some breakouts. Matisse can jumpstart that in a big way, but my God, he needs to make shots. That's... He needs to make shots and it's tough because when you put the ball in his hands, it's always, there's a, there's a dicey element to it. <laughs> like what, what's going to happen with this right now? Uh, he actually, on a fast break, I thought that against the the Timberwolves, it was him and Danny Green leading a fast break, and I was thinking like, "Oh man, this isn't going to end up good." And you know what? They did a nice job. He he passed to Danny, and Danny pitched it back to Ben for a dunk because the Timberwolves are bad, and they handled it pretty well. A but, Matisse uh, Danny Green fast break is like putting you and me on a podcast. Just yeah. not a great idea. Not a no. great. So, uh, I, I, by the way, I agree with you with, with the pace. I thought, honestly, one of the underrated things in that Lakers win was Ben Simmons at the beginning of the game. He didn't do it the entire game, but he was able to push the pace and they were able to get easy buckets, whether that was Ben, whether that was Joe against AD and the cross match. By the way, Joe should, uh, when he is campaigning for first team all NBA center, if he really wants to get the the shit talk to another level. He needs to point out that Anthony Davis does not guard him in these games. How are you going to be the first team all center when you don't do that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I did think that was one mistake that Doc made at the beginning of the game is not having Embiid guard AD. 
um, and having Harris try to guard him, especially oh. when we, we saw, you know, just a year and a half ago that Harris can hold up against Gasol in the post. And you still have you still have people on your staff who were there for that series. I was surprised they came out and they let Gasol um, pull and beat away from the basket. And look, some of those like some of those early backdoor cuts, like yeah, those were opened up by Gasol. But like Ben fell asleep on a couple of those. Tobias on bad. one too. Yeah. Um, where those it wasn't even like he was being overly aggressive. He just he fell asleep for a second. And LeBron took the opportunity. Why? Are, uh, yeah. Why are you denying LeBron at the three yeah. point line too? Like. He's gonna get the ball one way or another. Let him let him catch it. Don't get right, beat back door for a dunk. Twenty-seven feet from the basket. Yeah. So that, but just the fact that they came out with that, and I think you brought up a good point in your article. You're upon further review. Maybe it was just to try to keep him beat out of foul trouble. That's the biggest. But I think sometimes people just look at at size and they're like, "Well, Tobias can't guard Gasol. He's got five inches yeah, on him. He absolutely can guard well, Gasol. Let him back him down. That's fine. That's fine. And like I said, we saw that a couple of years ago. Um. Gasol is going to shoot thirty percent on hook shots over Tobias. It's not a big deal, yeah. And he's does he's not he doesn't want to do it either. Too like I, I was thinking, I mean honestly, I was like kind of losing my mind when they were scoring all those points at the beginning and, and just racking my brain to that Toronto series. If if Gasol made one jump hook against Tobias, do you think he would do it again on the next possession? I don't think he would. No, I don't think he doesn't he would like he doesn't like doing it. He wants he wants to facilitate facilitate the offense from the high post. That's what he wants to do. Uh, that's what he wanted to do in his prime and certainly what he wants to do now. All right, moving on to some of the bench units. You know, you've, you've pretty much had your main bench pieces. Uh, Milton, Maxi. I think now Korkmaz you would put in that group and Howard with one of the Sixers, two, or one of the Sixers remaining starters. Almost always in Tobias Harris or Ben Simmons joining that group. Doc has been lamenting the loss of Mike Scott more than I've ever heard a coach lament the loss of Mike Scott. Uh, he cannot go a press conference without bringing up how much of a bind not having Mike Scott puts them in, which I don't know if Mike Scott was ever this important to rotation, even going back to Virginia. It really is. Um, <laughs> By the way, he's still not. He's not this important. No, he's not. He's not. He's not. Um, Doc really wants a 6'8 a to 6'10 4 to put in that uh put in that spot. And even so, I think I think this is like the defending the four, I think is both Simmons and Harris' natural position anyway. Uh so I don't I don't mind that. Or not natural because Ben's so versatile, but they're both more than comfortable, capable of defending that spot in today's NBA. By the way, Doc keeps bringing up the position. I honestly think the better argument for Mike Scott playing Spacing. is that he can shoot. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh but I mean, he he's basically sending a message to Daryl Morey every time he says that. So look for the Sixers to acquire another big man uh, before the trade deadline. But going back to those bench units with a starter and looking at some of these numbers, the bench unit with uh, Thibel and Harris has a plus 8.6 with, um, where am I? Nope, I lost it. But, I mean, I, I look, They're playing pretty well. They're playing pretty well. I looked at a lot of the numbers in the... The Simmons and Harris, they have the Simmons and Harris dichotomy right now, where because Mike Scott is not in, Doc has been fairly militant of, okay, half of these all bench minutes, Ben has to be on the court at all times, and half of these all bench minutes, Tobias has to be on the floor at all times. And by the way, congratulations to Tobias Harris. You have now reached alpha dog status when it comes to setting the Sixers rotation. Will that last for the entire season? I'm not sure. 
But right now, <laughs> you are one of the three best players, and Doc has made it a point to say, I want one of you on the court at all times. So I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but those Tobias-only units have been good, but they've been good in a weird way. They've yeah. been good because they're defending well. They're, they're averaging 98 points per 100 possessions, which is but atrocious. But they're still on top because they're stopping Defense teams at a better rate, yep. which is yep. some small sample size theater and yeah. all that stuff. But yeah, you would normally think like, okay, the, the Ben units would have to be better defensively and the Tobias units better offensively. The Ben units are just bad at everything right now. So, and that is also some, some small sample size stuff, but, uh. Yeah, I mean, until Mike Scott returns, it's pretty clear that Doc is is telling Tobias and Ben one one of you is going to play forty minutes tonight. Yeah, and even with um, you know, even uh, so, I I guess moving back, like when Mike Scott comes back, I wouldn't mind seeing that stagger, the star stagger, with Harris um, maintain, uh, not all the time because you don't want Harris playing huge minutes. But I like having another option there with Maxi and Milton to create some offense. And I think Tobias has filled in well with this role. Tobias has sneakily usually been more efficient when Embiid has been off the floor anyway. Uh, I think adjusting to that post-up heavy game hasn't always been 100% natural to him. But I think that lineup has looked pretty good. And if that can help stabilize a bench unit, which still, quite frankly, is extremely young. Like when you start looking at contenders... Um, once you get past Dwight Howard, like all of the Sixers core bench players are pretty young and pretty inexperienced and pretty unproven in a playoff atmosphere, having Tobias with that group rather than a pure 100% bench lineup. And look, I think when they got to the playoffs, they were always going to change the staggers a little bit. I think this is a pretty natural change to make, but I do hope Mike Scott comes back soon in part for the spacing and in part, because then I don't have to hear doc mention his absence literally every, every press conference. He's not going to bring up him up once when he's actually playing. <laughs> right. yeah, he made a cup. He made a couple threes tonight. Whenever Mike Scott's like, "Man, I was so ass with Doc last time. I got to be better this year." Meanwhile, he's indispensable. It's it's an amazing development. Yeah, you know they've they've grown close together. And Mike Scott, the only thing he's done this week is get a technical from the bench while wearing a polo and a uh, and, and a mask. jeans yep. while uh, while arguing with Josh Jackson, who looked like he was willing to argue with anybody. Um, <laughs> Seems right. like it's a pretty good place to Yeah. Moving on, it. we have the Pacers and then the Hornets to wrap up this little three-game road trip, then two at home with the Blazers and Nets, and then another four-game Western Conference road trip, which you and I would typically be on, but we are not this year because COVID and traveling. But it is a, I mean, look, they're 16-4, and four, game and a half up on the East. Good place to be in. Eventually, the schedule will get sixteen and four. They're not sixteen and four. They're fourteen and six. Sorry, I'm dyslexic. Sometimes it happens. It happens. It happens. It happens. Uh, they're in a good spot. Uh, where are we? Twelfth in offense, fifth in defense. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, look, the takeaway is Embiid's great, and everything else is easier to put around him when that is true. If they could just get one of these two next games, that's that's a successful road trip, and that is how you get one of the top seeds. You know, like last year, it's like we baseball. Were, win we two out of three in a series. Last year, yeah, and especially win two out of three on the road. Last year, when they're just, I mean, they're losing four in a row on the road at three different times. It's no bueno. But yeah. uh, 
And Charlotte's they, struggling. Like Charlotte had a had a run there a couple weeks ago where they looked like they might be semi competent, uh, but they have been struggling here of late. So they they should have a, a real chance to accomplish that for sure, for sure. All right, thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. See you, man.